Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a microbiologist tells about the potential of a new diagnostic test for Lyme disease and how you can get involved in the clinical trial. What we're currently looking for at our site are people who have Lyme disease, um, whether they have a rash or not, and are within seven days of diagnosis. And the Chief of Infectious Disease discusses the natural behavior of coronaviruses and the difference between mutations and variants. Most of the variants seem to be a bit more transmissible and or possibly significantly more transmissible than the original variants or the, the original viruses. All that plus a visit from The Healing Muse after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll explore what distinguishes coronaviruses from other viruses. Then we'll learn what's important to know about emerging variants. But first, are you willing to participate in a study of a new Lyme disease diagnostic test? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Doctors would like to have a reliable and quick way to diagnose Lyme disease in their patients, and today we'll hear about an exciting study taking place at Upstate that may help develop a better diagnostic test for Lyme disease. Talking with me is Dr. Christopher Paulino, an assistant professor of medicine and of microbiology and immunology, and he's also the principal investigator for this study. Thank you for making time for HealthLink on Air, Dr. Paolino. Thank you for having me. Can you first tell us about the tests that already exist for Lyme disease? Yeah, sure. So there are a lot of tests out there. So I'm really going to just focus on the FDA approved tests because those are the ones that have really kind of gone through the stringent testing and, and validation. Um, so the, the first and the most well-recognized is the standard two-tier test that's been around for about 35 years since they really adopted that. And it's a two-tier test because it, it encompasses two separate tests. There's an ELISA that's used as a screening test, and then there is a confirmatory Western blot. Um, it's basically measuring antibody responses to Lyme and the uh, and the the resulting antibodies that that you would be able to detect uh, from the infection. And um, Eliza, are, Eliza and Western blot are different types of blood tests. There are different types of blood tests to using different technologies, uh, both essentially looking at antibodies. The Eliza is looking at kind of overall antibodies, and then the Western blot. We'll look at multiple different types of antibodies to to Lyme disease, and it gets a little complicated um, because for the Western blot, you need to have, based on the CDC guidelines, a minimum of two out of three of the IgM bands, and a minimum of five out of ten of the IgG bands for it to be a confirmed positive test. Um, we've had a couple other tests uh, over the the past couple of years. There's a uh, a C6 uh, assay, uh, which is another antibody looking uh, at a response to the C6 surface protein on, on the Lyme bacteria. That was used quite a bit um, kind of on the side, and that seems to have been replaced more recently by the modified two-tier test, which is uh, a newer test that's come out over really the past two years, um, looking instead of uh, at an ELISA and a Western blot and looking at really two different ELISA tests. Um, and the, the thought process is that it will have better, better sensitivity early in the disease process um, and, and have a shorter duration from testing to results. So how long does it take to get the results? When a patient gives the blood work, how, how long until you can tell them whether they've got the antibodies? Yeah, it depends. Um, if you're if you're at an academic institution that can run the, the standard two tier test, we can generally get the testing back within a couple of days. Many of the uh, tests uh, at some of the community hospitals or uh, outside clinics, there there may be a week to two week lag time depending on uh, where it's being sent to and and how long the send out takes. 
All right. Well, before we talk about the Lyme study that you're the immune sense Lyme study that you're involved with, let's get some basics about Lyme disease. Listeners may already know that it's a disease transmitted through the bite of an infected tick. But what happens in the body after the tick bite? Yeah, I think I think we could even start at the tick itself, right? So a lot of there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to vector-borne diseases. So blood sucking insects, injecting bacteria or viruses into the body, it doesn't generally just occur like a hypodermic needle, like you, you get stuck by the, the biting mechanism and all of a sudden you're infected. So the reason why a lot of uh, uh, public health authorities will say, you know, you really need to have a bite that's been attached for 36 hours or longer is really due to the fact that the biology going on in the ticks is occurring. So the, the bacteria for Lyme, for example, lives in the midgut of the tick. And when you have a blood meal, say a tick bites you, the blood comes into the tick, um, the bacteria senses that blood meal, starts to change its, um, its activity, will burrow through the midgut of the tick, and then kind of disseminate through the tick's um, lymph, uh, hemolymph system or blood, blood system and then make its way to the salivary glands, which it then injects into the body. Um, after the spirochetes make its way into the body, it, it's basically going to replicate and start to disseminate through the skin. And then once that occurs, that's when you may see the rash occur and you see uh, the spirochetes will go through the, um, the bloodstream and disseminate through the body of the person that's infected and go to one of the many target organs, whether it's the, the joints, potentially the heart, uh, or potentially the nervous system. So aside from this rash, this characteristic, I, I think it's a, a bullseye looking rash. Mm -hmm. Are there symptoms that a person should be alert to? You mentioned that it depends on which body system is affected, but what are the symptoms you might feel? Yeah, so it depends on kind of where we're at in the infection. So if somebody gets a tick bite, you know, anywhere between, you know, a week to four weeks after the tick bite, they may see a rash. Um, it doesn't happen universally. Um, some people just don't get a rash at the tick bite. Some people, maybe the tick bite occurs in an area of the body where they, they can't really see the rash easily, um, maybe up on the scalp, for example. Um, and then associated with that early infection, uh, potentially with the rash or shortly thereafter, you can have flu-like symptoms, fevers, headaches, body aches, chills, things that would otherwise be kind of chalked up as maybe a summer cold, um, just without the respiratory symptoms. Um, and then as you kind of get into the, um, the early disseminated phase of the infection, as it does get out into the, some of the other uh, organ systems, um, you can either have uh, Lyme meningitis, uh, which is where it affects the, the brain and spinal cord, and it can cause bad headaches, uh, can be difficult to, to look at bright lights because it hurts your eyes, um, you can get some neck stiffness as well as the fevers and chills. And then in some cases, it can uh, affect the heart and cause a heart block where your, your heart rate can actually drop down to very low levels, lower than would normally be seen in an otherwise healthy person. And that can actually be more concerning and life-threatening. As we kind of get later on, um, that's when the joints and arthritis can really start to set in. And then in some of the unlucky few who um, who don't really respond well to the antibiotics or maybe... They, they get antibiotics, but it's kind of late in the process of the infection. You can go on to have more chronic symptoms um, where there's a little bit more controversy in terms of what's causing it. Um, you know, I think many of the many of the researchers believe that it's no longer an active infection after it's been treated. Um, and it's more of a chronic um, uh, illness, whether it's uh, inflammatory or neurologic damage or whatever it may be. Um, it's uh, It's something that antibiotics probably aren't going to help a whole lot with kind of kind of like what we're seeing with the COVID long haulers, right? So people recover from the infection, the infection's gone, but now they're having chronic symptoms afterwards. So the treatment generally is antibiotics, but mm -hmm. it seems like the earlier in the course of the disease, maybe the more helpful they may be. Yeah. And that's why early detection and diagnosis is important because the longer somebody goes with these symptoms, the more damage that can be done to the body, the more inflammation, uh, the more potential neurologic damage to the nerves. Um, so we really want to try to get the diagnosis as early as possible. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Lyme disease researcher, Dr. Christopher Paolino. So tell us about the Immune Sense Lyme study. 
How is this immune sense designed to work? To take a step back, the tests that we currently have are measuring antibodies, right? So, and, and that, and that in, in a sense is an indirect test, right? So a direct test would be, you know, culturing a bacteria from a blood sample or, or a sample somewhere, or, or potentially looking for the DNA of the infection um, in a sample. Um, really the only direct tests that are available for Lyme disease are a PCR test where you look for the DNA of the bacteria. And it's really only useful if you're doing it off of an inflamed or swollen joint. Now, as far as the, uh, the current test, we're measuring antibodies. Um, uh, we're really measuring the antibody response. And because people can have uh, a little bit of a delay from the infection to the time that they mount a measurable antibody response, that's where that sensitivity early in the course of the disease process is quite low, 20, maybe 30% positive. Um, the difference with the immune sense test is it's really looking more at the T cell response. So there's the, um, the antibody response. This is really kind of um, targeting the B cells and the B cells ability to mount that antibody response. Whereas the T cells are, are basically, uh, they're looking for the infection in the body. They're looking for changes in some of the cells um, and identifying you know, that there is a potential infection there. And then they can kind of branch out and either uh, clone themselves to create kind of killer cells that will help treat the infection or potentially change themselves so that they can alert those B cells to say, hey, we need to start to mount an immune response and antibodies. So it's, it's a potential um, avenue where we can maybe have earlier diagnosis um, as, we, as we measure uh, these T cell responses. Now this test, the immune sense test, is basically going to be looking at those T cells and using PCR technology and sequencing technology to look for genetic changes in some of the receptors of those, of those T cells. And they're hopefully, the company uh, Adaptive, is hopefully going to be able to see a difference in those T cells in otherwise healthy people versus people who have Lyme versus people who have other tick-borne diseases as well as other non-infectious diseases and see if it makes, um, makes sense and there's actually a signal that they can use to help diagnose earlier. Would it be more accurate uh, to use a test like ImmuneSense for someone who has a compromised immune system? We're looking at the immune system with both aspects, so I don't know how much more effective it would be. The only way to really tell would be to do studies in a more immunocompromised population. So tell us, how does someone go about participating in the study that you're doing right now with ImmuneSense? Sure. Um, so, it, you know, what we're currently looking for at our site are people who have Lyme disease, um, whether they have a rash or not, and are within seven days of diagnosis. I say seven days of diagnosis because almost every provider out there is, is going to basically say, all right, you need to start doxycycline or some other antibiotic therapy early on. We really need to identify these patients within seven days of starting treatment. So anybody with a bullseye rash, anybody with um, uh, Lyme-like illness, you know, say Bell's palsy or Lyme meningitis, Lyme carditis, you know, those are the people that we're looking for. There are other site, sites across the country that are also looking at other groups. Um, we were looking at kind of healthy individuals. Um, that group has actually already been filled. Um, there's also um, other sites looking in non-endemic areas where they're looking for uh, people who have things like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or other similar kind of inflammatory processes that are not infectious. Um, and then our, our other group that we're looking for are people who have other known tick-borne diseases. So people who are diagnosed over the summer with things like babesiosis or anaplasmosis or ehrlichiosis. Those were all people that were also looking to, to enroll into the study just to see if the, the test can differentiate between those types of tick-borne diseases as well as Lyme. Is there any age cutoff? Uh, are you accepting children and adults? So I, I'm not a pediatrician. Um, I'm, I'm focusing mainly on 18 years old and older. Um, there, are, there are other sites that are doing this study that do go down to younger age groups. Uh, but for myself, we're really just focusing on 18 years old and up. So what will be involved? How many visits? How many tests? 
Yeah, so um, there's at least one visit. Um, so that initial uh, blood draw and screening visit would be uh, visit one. And then for people who have been identified as having either Lyme disease because of a rash or uh, likely Lyme disease because of kind of symptoms or other diagnostic tests that have been done, um, those individuals are going to uh, be asked to come back three additional times, so up to four different visits. Um, one would be a 30-day follow-up after the initial visit. I believe there's a six-month visit, and then there's also a 12-month visit just to see how the antibody responses uh, change and the immune sense responses change over time. So how would someone go about finding more information for how to participate? Yeah, so um, if you're local to Syracuse, you can reach out to us uh, here at the university, but probably the easiest way to do it for the, listen for the listeners would be to go to the website. There's a website that's set up for this study um, that asks some questions that can kind of help determine whether or not you're eligible. And the website is immunesensestudy.com. And it'll give uh, a little section on the bottom of that uh, that asks the questions, asks some of your contact information, and then uh, we'd be able to reach out to you to determine if you're eligible after that. Now, why should someone consider participating? Well, you know, you know, I, I think the big thing is we can't do these studies and and have advances in the diagnostics unless we have people volunteering to help. Um, so when it comes to, you know, any kind of clinical research, you know, you don't, you don't get those advances unless you have the, the participants volunteering. Um, you know, I've been involved in the, the COVID Pfizer vaccine study for the past eight months. And, you know, we wouldn't be where we are today without, you know, all of the people that have stepped up and said, yeah, I, I want to help out and try to try to help identify a new vaccine. The same goes for every other disease process out there. You know, we need to have people who are willing and able to donate their time and maybe a little bit of blood in the sense of this study um, to uh, to help you know, further the science and, and further the diagnostic capabilities that we currently have. I mean, we're, like I said earlier, we're using the same tests that we've been using for the past like 35 years. You know, we, we really should have something new and better at this point. So that would be, that would be the, the big, the big reason. Well, thank you to Dr. Christopher Paolino. He's an assistant professor of medicine and microbiology and immunology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. Will the COVID-19 vaccines protect us from emerging coronavirus variants? Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. If you're confused about the difference between a viral mutation and a variant, my guest will be able to help. Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy is Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate University Hospital, and I've asked her for a crash course in microbiology. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Reddy. Thank you so much, Amber. It's good to be here. Now, what distinguishes a coronavirus among viruses? So coronaviruses, actually, interestingly, were not even identified until the 1960s as uh, causes of typically the common cold. In terms of what distinguishes them, when you look at them under the microscope, I think we've become familiar with the um, spike and crown appearance that gives them their name as coronaviruses. So that's, you know, in the microbiology lab, one of the things that makes them unique. In terms of how they're functioning in a pandemic um, and the risks to humans, I think one of the most important features of coronaviruses is their ability to live in animals and in multiple species of animals and then become transmitted to humans and cause human infection. So it really increases the likelihood of new viruses emerging when you have such a large pool that exists throughout the animal kingdom. So how many different coronaviruses are there? And I, do we maybe not know all of them? Yes, that's actually correct. So when you look at the animal kingdom, there are hundreds and probably thousands of coronaviruses, most of which are existing in bats. Um, in humans, we have seven 
coronavirus species that have been identified as causing human infection. So um, four of those are the ones that I mentioned earlier that cause really the, the common cold and upper respiratory tract infections. These may cause other kind of systemic illness like diarrhea or generalized illness in infants or people with compromised immune systems. But for the most part, they were pretty mild pathogens. Then we have three coronaviruses that have really caused the more severe types of infections. Um, the first one of those was the original SARS virus um, that emerged in the earlier 2000s. And that one caused the, the so SARS stands for severe acute respiratory virus syndrome. Um, and this and this one is something that we saw largely emerging in Asia but really caused a, a very severe illness with a high level of fatality and severe pneumonia. Um, and one of the features of that that allowed us to get it under control was that the onset of the ability to spread the virus coincided with the onset of symptoms. And there was much less of an asymptomatic kind of picture with that virus. So that was the first SARS virus. And then we also have the MERS virus and the Middle East respiratory virus. And that one um, continues to cause sporadic severe illness in, um, in the Middle East. And then, of course, we have our SARS-CoV-2 that emerged in 2019. So those are really the seven coronaviruses that are, that are causing illness in humans. Are, let me ask you, if coronaviruses, are they unique that they have some that cause mild illness and others that can be deadly? Or do you see other viruses that have like a range of different types that... Some are severe and some are not. There, there definitely are other viruses that have a range of severity. I mean, even if you look at influenza viruses, uh, even though we're, you know, you were thinking about different species, there's different strains of influenza viruses. There is a huge variety of severity when you look at the potential for pandemics in that one type of virus. So, uh, so I would say that's not particularly unusual. Do scientists agree that this coronavirus was transmitted from an animal to a human, or do we know that for sure yet? That is a great question. If you look at the headlines, even today, this topic continues to be debated. So I think there's a decent amount of evidence that it, most scientists, I would say, believe this probably was an, an animal to human transmission. And the accumulated evidence for the original SARS, like I was mentioning, as well as MERS, would suggest that both of those were uh, animal to human transmissions. Because of the location of a virology laboratory in Wuhan, China, uh, that actually was studying coronaviruses at the time of the outbreak, as you can imagine, that obviously raises concerns and questions and suspicions. Um, as to whether there was a possibility that the current strain emerged from uh, from a laboratory accident or even potentially something more sinister. Um, I, you know, it's going to be very, very, very difficult to impossible, in my opinion, for us to actually prove this one way or another. I think there's likely a vested interest in not having a lot of clear cut information. Um, be released to try and explain whether or not something like that would have happened. So I think it's going to be very tricky for us to fully trace whether or not there was a possibility of a laboratory release in this case, whether accidental or otherwise. Um, that having been said, obviously, you know, thinking forward, it's important to consider both possibilities for human safety. So, you know, the, the reality is we know that there are, as I said, hundreds to thousands of coronavirus species currently existing in animals that have the possibility to mutate and become uh, viruses that can infect humans. And, and at the same time, we also know that viruses are being studied throughout the world. We know that there is a potential for bioterrorism or accidents that could occur. And all of these things need to be considered, I think, in terms of, like I said, a public health approach. Can, can you explain how an individual coronavirus begins and, and how long it lives and how it dies naturally? I mean, unchecked, would it just go on existing indefinitely? So any virus that's going to carry on needs to have a host that is capable of 
completing that transmission cycle. So the unique feature of viruses compared to uh, other organisms is that they don't, uh, they, they really can't replicate unless they have a host, a living host in which to carry on their replication cycle. Um, so there are some bacteria that are they're somewhat similar in that fashion, but basically viruses are really, they're not independent organisms. They are dependent on their host in order to uh, propagate. So when it, when it comes to where does the coronavirus come from, you know, it has to really come from another coronavirus uh, and whether or not it changed in order to actually become a coronavirus that can be transmitted within a new set of hosts is, is really the question. Now, when we're talking about human coronaviruses and specifically the virus that causes COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2, it where it comes from is from a person who has an active infection. So you really have to have a person with an active infection that is shedding replication competent virus um, and or a very, very close um, circumstance where somebody came into contact with a surface or with you know, air that had the virus in it that was recently in contact with another person. Now, I think part of the question you're asking here is, you know, the, the level of transmission that can occur on surfaces or in the air with this particular coronavirus. From all the evidence that we have, it, it looks like surface transmission is relatively rare. So that this coronavirus can apparently survive on surfaces for, you know, up, up to days, depending on the surface. So cool, hard metal surfaces are the place that it would most likely be able to survive. Soft, fuzzy, warm surfaces or sunlit surfaces are, are unable to really support living virus. But what to what extent does anybody touching those surfaces and then touching their nose, does that really contribute to transmission of this particular coronavirus? It looks like that is pretty minimal. And most of it is direct exposure, mostly to droplets from people with infection and a little bit to aerosols. And that is something that I think is a bit unique that has been recognized with this particular coronavirus of SARS-CoV-2 is the ability for it to survive in very small particles suspended in the air for potentially up to a couple hours, although likely, um, you know, it's really probably shorter timeframes than a couple hours that result in active transmission. So if I were to catch the coronavirus and it's in my body, would it live there comfortably until my immune system gets rid of it? Yes, this is an acute infection. Um, even though people really are experiencing these syndromes that are being referred to as long COVID, they, we don't have evidence to date that the active virus or a living virus is surviving in people's bodies much beyond the, the course of about 10 days. So. Um, a lot of our protocols for when people could come off isolation if they are sick with COVID-19 relates to the fact that once the immune response kicks in, it actively gets rid of replication competent virus so that, that those viruses that are able to be spread to other people are killed by our immune system and we get over the virus. People who have compromised immune systems um, or people who are very, very severely ill and require ICU level care may shed live virus for a little bit longer of potentially up to about three weeks instead of the 10 days. But again, that's a relatively rarer subgroup of people um, and still represents what we consider to be an acute infection that ultimately the immune system is going to overcome. And that at that point, any kind of uh, virus that's residual in the system is more like particles of the body getting rid of the infection that was there originally. And when you say shed the virus, you mean the virus comes out when they cough or sneeze? Yes, exactly. Okay. Also speaking, I mean, we've, we've recognized in, of course, we knew this before, but I think it's come to light even more as we've had to think about transmission of this virus. When people speak, there are small droplets that are created that can cause infection. So people, anybody really in, in close proximity to somebody else having a conversation can potentially transmit the virus and doesn't have to necessarily be coughing, sneezing, et cetera. 
This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with the Chief of Infectious Disease, Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy. She's been telling us about the coronavirus that's responsible for the global pandemic. I'd like to have you explain to us what a strain is and, and how it differs from a mutation or a variant. Sure. I'm going to start out with mutation. So that's really the, the first thing that happens. Basically, all viruses mutate. So they um, viruses, when they replicate, they have kind of machinery. They, they oftentimes use our own machinery as well as their own machinery in order to make copies of themselves. And there are some viruses that are what we would say very faithful in how they copy themselves and others that are much less faithful in how they copy themselves. And so, but regardless, as they copy themselves, mistakes are made along the way. Those mistakes, as we would say, so changing from the original series of either RNA or DNA, so the original series of genetic material that the virus was made of into something that's slightly different. So maybe one of those little elements, we call those base pairs. So one of those, those pieces of RNA um, was changed or a piece of DNA was changed along the way. Uh, that's a mutation. And it literally happens in, in every single virus. It happens in our own body. So it's just a change in the genetic sequence that's occurring as a virus is, is copying itself. Um, a strain is actually, I think part of the problem with this is that these are, are not well-defined scientific terms. So at some point, a virus that has had mutations becomes different enough that we're able to identify certain characteristics that make it unique. Uh, and then at that point, it becomes a strain. A variant and a strain are really the same thing. So I think throughout the course of this particular pandemic, the term variant has overtaken the term strain in describing what we're seeing. And But really those terms are relatively interchangeable. With some, virologists would argue that a strain is something more sort of a change that's more significant than a variant, um, but that's not universally agreed upon. So there's no really one clear definition of when something has become a strain. Um, so I'm gonna focus on variants and really what we're dealing with with variants is like I said, the virus has changed enough through these mutations that have occurred where there are some recognizable features of it being different and we're seeing multiple multiple viruses that have similar signatures so that look like they're about the same as each other um, and at that point we're able to say okay this is not just the individual variation that occurs from person to person so you know if you take two people who are both sick with COVID-19 and you're able to capture virus from their systems even within their own one individual person, you're gonna have multiple different viruses that are subtly different by one or two uh, base pairs. So one or two little bits of, of genetic material are gonna be different. Between two people, it may be a little bit more, but some of the critical features and the special areas of the virus that we worry about the most, if you start seeing similar patterns in those critical areas, that's when you have a variant. And you start seeing those over and over and over again in a similar population, then you can say, okay, now we really have a variant that we're dealing with here. So it sounds like the fact that this coronavirus has mutated is not at all surprising, uh, and that the variants that have emerged are not very surprising either. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. The the main uh, kind of goal, if viruses can have a goal, that they they're following the path of least resistance. So whatever allows them to do a better job of moving from one host to another and replicating themselves within a particular host is that's what's going to happen. So anything that facilitates better replication is going to be, as we say, selected for. So these natural changes or mutations that are occurring, some of them are going to be completely irrelevant or maybe even make the virus weaker. And ultimately, those are just gonna disappear because they're not providing any kind of advantage to the virus. The ones that are going to be, as we say, selected for are the ones that allow the virus to do a better job of moving between hosts. Upstate's HealthLink on Air will be back with more about SARS-CoV-2 with Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy after this short break. 
Thank you for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, and my guest is Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy. She's the Chief of Infectious Disease, and she's been explaining the nature of viruses in general and the one that caused the pandemic specifically. I'd like to ask you about the variants that have emerged in India, Brazil, and elsewhere. How do they get named? For instance, B.1.620, what does the B stand for and what do the numbers mean? Yeah, so the original virus as it came from Wuhan, China was classified as an A virus. And later it changed enough that again, we were able to recognize some, some patterns and the differences and the different sequences that he had emerged. And so there at that point, most of the viruses that were circulating in Europe and the United States gained a B designation. Later, uh, there's a separate kind of naming scheme for viruses called the Pango classification. And that's where when you look at viruses that emerged in Japan and Brazil, they will have this P designation. So that's, that's for the Pango designation. So honestly, it's a little bit all over the place. And part of that is because it's not common that we have something that emerges so rapidly and that we have such a need to quickly understand how these variants are behaving. So that's, so that's where the first letter comes from. After that, um, what they're looking for is sort of, when was this identified? Was this the first one that was identified? Um, is it, uh, and how many different samples were sent that looked like this before this identification was sort of finalized as being an actual variant. So that's what the subsequent numbers are standing for. So, so like 117 would be, there were 117 different samples that all carried this very similar appearance at the time that people agreed that this is a variant that needs sort of attention. Um, and, and even at that point, I would I really give a lot of credit to the UK uh, systems that were in place to try and identify variants. It was something that you know consortium of scientists were looking at and were able to say, hey, something's going on here that really is raising some red flags. And not, you know, the rest of the world I would say was not quite as quick to either pick up on that and or identify it as something that should be tracked. And over time, you know, just within the last six months, five months even, we've seen a lot more organization of virologists um, working together with public health officials to try to classify the various variants that have emerged and figure out what they might mean for diagnosis of the infection, transmission of the infection, um, and use of any kind of therapeutics and vaccines. So when an, a variant emerges from, say, Brazil, are we sure that it started in Brazil or is that just where it was found? I mean, it may have started elsewhere and the person traveled into Brazil, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So where we're, and that's one of the reasons why actually it has been recommended that we avoid using uh locations as a way of identifying these types of strains. Of course it happens, it's definitely happening um, in terms of the way people are identifying things. And um, any, if you, any location throughout the globe that has had a lot of transmission has had emergence of variants. Um, and specifically now that we're looking for them has had variants of concern, meaning that um, these, are, these are variants that have the potential to impact at least some aspects that we care about related to the virus. So I agree with you, um, using the geography is, is less than ideal, and you're absolutely right that we don't really know specifically when this one particular variant emerged as, uh, as something that could establish itself within a population. What we do know and where, where these kind of geographical terms come from is that's where enough of the same variant was identified originally. So the testing that we have here in central New York, if someone goes in for a COVID test, will they get a report that tells them you have the variant from India or you have this variant, or will they just get a yes or no, there's the presence of coronavirus? 
Yes, they, they, at this point, they just get a yes or no. There's the presence of coronavirus. It really requires additional level of sequencing in order to try and determine whether any of the known variants of concern are present in a particular sample. So typically that was being done by New York State Laboratory Wadsworth for New York State. Um, CDC has had locations where they're obtaining samples to look at. Um, there are private universities, et cetera, that are looking for these. So it's something that would need to be looked for in a more in-depth way. So we won't really know that unless we're looking for it, whether whether it's there. Correct. Yep. And and as I said, you know, it, it really before the B117 variant emerged, there were other, you know, there was significant variation from the original Wuhan strain, uh, but that wasn't initially something that people kind of focused on as being of significance. And it wasn't until later when we started to say, okay, maybe this is something that we really need to consider and how we approach the battle against the COVID-19. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with the Chief of Infectious Disease, Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy. She's been telling us about the coronavirus that's responsible for the global pandemic. Do variants of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which has been responsible for the global pandemic, do the variants cause different symptoms in people? As far as we can tell, the symptoms appear to be very similar. The severity has been debated. So there are some reports that suggest that certain variants may cause more severe illness but uh, other reports are less clear on that matter. So it's very difficult actually, because um, if you have a situation where a, a surge or a, a large scale outbreak is occurring, there's so many different aspects of the healthcare system that can be impacted that to now look back and study whether or not a, that, a particular strain that be, or, or variant that may be involved in that case is actually causing more severe illness or it's just there are more cases that are being identified or the health system is under strain, it's very difficult to tease out. So at this point, what we think of as COVID-19, I would say by and large is the same spectrum of illness across the board, regardless of, of which variant might be involved um, with the possibility of some of the variants causing more severe disease that is, I would say to this date, still unconfirmed. So not all of the variants are necessarily worse than the original virus. Some of them might be more dangerous or more infectious or cause more severe disease, but some of them may not, it sounds like. I would say uh, transmissibility seems to be the common feature. And that makes sense, right? Because of what we were talking about related to as the virus mutates naturally, anything that makes it jump from one person to another more easily, so spread from one person to another more easily, um, or get into a host more easily, get into the host cells more easily once it's kind of uh, attached itself to the nose or the throat, the, that's what's going to make it survive, last, transmit from one person to the next. So I think that's been really the common theme is that it, it appears to the best of our ability to study this, that most of the variants seem to be a bit more transmissible and or possibly significantly more transmissible than the original variants or the, the original virus. How do we know if the existing vaccines are gonna be effective against the variants? Great question. And this is obviously top on everyone's list, right? So um, what has been done mostly to date is taking Sera, so uh, blood that has specifically the immune components of the blood removed and separated, and then testing that in laboratories against various different variants of the virus and looking to see to what degree um, are people who have been vaccinated, so the serum from people who have been vaccinated, to what degree is that able to neutralize, so to get rid of um, the virus that has been provided in the laboratory. So most of the data that we're getting comes from these types of laboratory studies. So you're essentially mixing together virus with um, the serum of people who have been vaccinated and trying to see, okay, it, is the virus now a, getting killed by this, um, by this mechanism, by the mixing of serum from vaccinated people, um, serum from convalescent people, so people who have 
gotten sick with variants and then recovered is, it, is another way of, of looking at it. Um, but the it, that's somewhat incomplete because that is specifically looking at one component of the immune system and the response to the virus and the immune system is complex and there are multiple different aspects of the immune system that are getting engaged both by natural illness as well as by vaccines. So there's a significant possibility that these types of mixing studies underestimate the degree to which a vaccine might protect people against a variant. So, so I may mix together serum with a virus and say, oh gosh, um, with this combination, it looks like only, you know, there's a 70% efficacy of the vaccine versus a 90% efficacy from an original, you know, a previous variant. But when you actually look at this in a person, their overall immune response may be significantly better than that 70%. So ultimately where our real answers are gonna come from is in real life situations, possibly clinical trials as well. It's, getting, it's hard to do these trials sometimes when variants change very quickly, right? So you enroll somebody and then another variant has come along and they're in a different population, et cetera. Um, but looking at what's happened in real life in uh, countries where mass vaccination has occurred and variants are circulating, the data are overall reassuring. So Qatar recently published some data where um, even though there has been significant emergence of variants and transmission of variants within the population, they have seen that the overall vaccine protection remains very high um, and the degree of severe illness, hospitalization and death among vaccine recipients, especially those who are fully vaccinated is uh, remarkably low and along the lines of the protection that was originally anticipated from the vaccines. Periodically, we hear that, you know, maybe we're going to need a booster if we've already been vaccinated there, you know, maybe in the future, we'll need a booster. Is that in response to variants in, in the event that, you know, if the vaccine doesn't work against the variant, is that why a booster might be needed? Absolutely. That's exactly the goal of a booster. And there are numerous companies. So the same companies who have made the original vaccines are uh, by and large all looking into making boosters to target different variants. Is this particular coronavirus something that could be eradicated like smallpox or is this a virus that we're likely to just have to live with? Over time, we've become a little bit more uh, realistic about the likelihood that this is a virus we're going to continue to live with. Uh, I've been likening it a bit to dropping a, a rock in a pool of water where the initial wave is quite big and over time the, the waves get smaller. And I'm, I'm certainly hoping that's what happens um, given our numerous approaches, particularly vaccination, um, but natural immunity, that we will experience, we will likely experience additional waves. Basically, I can guarantee we'll experience additional waves of illness. Um, hopefully, certainly in the United States with our vaccine approach, these waves will be less severe. I think the global nature of this and, and the different pockets of areas where there are, you know, vaccines are not available, vaccines are not being taken up, et cetera, it makes for a lot more uncertainty. But uh, this is not something that we're going to be able to eradicate at this point. Um, our hope, I think, really is that we get it to a point where it's overall less severe and something that we can better manage. Well, this has been very informative. Thank you to Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy. She's the Chief of Infectious Disease at Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and radio talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Charlene Langford, writer, organic gardener, rescue dog advocate, lives in Syracuse. She sent us a poem months before we had coronavirus, yet it is a wonderfully apt poem for today's anxious times. Here is The Conditions of Happiness. I am sitting out back under the giant green-leafed sycamore, collecting ideas on a piece of paper. 
the same way I begin to write another poem, the same way I collected ideas for the garden, pick out what seeds to plant, how much dirt to reclaim from pure desert, collecting notions about what works after a good season, what will grow healthy and come back to life again, no matter what else happens in the world around us, unending rain, unbearable heat, about what is meat, what is fertile enough, what returns. A long walk in the sun with the dog each day is an idea I keep, a spontaneous outing with the true purpose. How else to put together a balanced sense for a life if not this way? Collecting seeds, saving trees, watching my leaping dog leap, a walk in the sun, seeds smaller than I am able to hold easily in my hands. Watching how the dog's tail is wagging under the midday sun as if nothing else matters, I try to remember the list the next time trouble comes to me. All the worries and all the aches and pains. I focus my mind on what works, the idea of it, a list of suffering's nemesis, the palm tree at the end of the mine. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, why herd immunity probably won't happen, and the physical benefits of hiking. If you missed any of today's show, or for more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org, or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Music